the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete, had this chant, when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Welcome to August of 1963, the American Charts. I'm Ed Chan. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Crubell. The Beatles haven't quite made their mark on this side of the pond, although it's coming. The record is out on Swan. It won't go anywhere, but in just a few months' time, it can't be stopped. That's right. But until then, the U.S. charts have some interesting records this month. We're going to see some classic, some lesser known, but still incredible soul and R&B records. And we're also going to see an interesting trend of surfing music. We're going to hear the word surf a lot in this episode. As much as Mersey Beat was starting to make its mark on the British charts, the surf sound was becoming a big thing, although, you know, the surf sound would not last for that much longer. No, and obviously the Beach Boys were the biggest examples of the surf sound, but as we go through the Billboard charts, we will see there are so many songs here that have the title surf. And in fact, it's amusing. I mean, there are some artists like Dwayne Eddy and some others that the title surf is in the song. But some of the songs, they really don't sound surfy at all. At all. So it's just so clear how popular this trend was, you know, in 1963, that they would just use any excuse, you know, just put the term surf in there and it'll be a hit. It's just the same thing that they did with the twist. Exactly. There was the twist and then there was all the other twisting songs. Yep, exactly. Keep an eye out for that as we're talking. You're going to hear a number of songs that have the word surf in it. So just show you, this was like the peak of this trend. And then the other thing I want to mention, which I commented on to Martin, this is the biggest divide between the African-American music and and the white folks music, you know? Yeah. You've got a selection of songs which are very clearly white people songs and a selection of songs which are very clearly the black people songs. And it's like... Oh, wow. Never the twain shall meet. Exactly. But that's a good point to bring up. We are going to hear some great soul and R&B records on the U.S. charts. Some really good stuff. Right there at number one, there's Stevie Wonder's Fingertips Part 2, which we spent a long time last month talking about. Yeah, you know, shut it, up. <laughs> <laughs> We won't go on about it. No, go listen won't. to it last month, but it, it is the introduction of Stevie Wonder to the charts. If anybody Mm. wants it, I'm sure Kit could do an entire hour-long episode all about that song. (laughs) 
I'll contain myself, but listen to last month's episode and you'll hear all about it. At number 17, another song which is common to us from our childhoods, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada by Alan Sherman. Dearest Fada, darling Mudda, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me. I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me. Wait a minute, it stopped hailing. Guys are swimming, guys are sailing, playing baseball. Gee, that's better. Mata Fada, kindly disregard this ladder. pretty funny. It still works. In fact, in 2020, the song was selected by the Library of Congress for uh, preservation in the United States National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And another reason to include this is the following year in 64, he did do his own comedic take on the Beatles. He did a song called Pop Hates the Beatles to the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel, from the perspective of a fed-up father. Chris Carter plays it every now and again on Breakfast with the Beatles. It's not so great. It's Pop Goes the Weasel, but it's the musical equivalent of like those Archie covers. Yeah, exactly. Betty and Veronica, they're mooning over the Beatles, and Pops is there like, who? What? Mm-hmm. So Exactly. Yeah, Hello Mata, Hello Fada is way better. At number 40... Freddie Scott with a Goffin and King song, Hey Girl. There's a lovely song. Hey girl, I want you to know I'm gonna miss you so much if you go. This song is so good. It was written by Goffin and King. It was originally intended for Chuck Jackson. The day of the recording session, Jackson failed to show up. And so in came Freddie Scott, and he recorded the track. I love it. Uh, I do wish the background singers weren't quite so high in the mix. Production issues. We've talked about that before. Yes, production issues. Don't love the production on this. But... Still. He's another one who just had such a great voice. Oh, my God. I mean, he was so good. Now, the first time I heard this song, though, and maybe some people listening in will remember this as well, Billy Joel covered this in 1997 for his Greatest Hits Volume 3 album. And, you know, how a lot of Greatest Hits albums, they have to put a track or two as an extra and he did a version of this and i think that was the first version i heard and i immediately liked it you know and i just thought what's the story behind this and so then sometime later i heard the original and i've just always loved this track hey girl this can't be true how am i supposed to exist 
without you remember the Billy Joel version. I remember this was in rare rotation on the oldies radio. Yeah. But I do remember hearing it on oldies radio in the late 80s, early 90s. Martin, didn't you say your wife really liked this? More the Billy Joel version. Like you mentioned, that's when it started. She she was like, oh, Billy Joel did a great version of this. I think it's production issues with the Freddie Scott version, like you said. Yeah. Michael McDonald did a good version of it as well. Oh, really? I could see him doing this. His performance mm-hmm. live is better than the recorded version. Okay. One more time, girl. The truth is, I just can't stop loving you. No. Don't go. Don't go. All right, at number 49, Surfer Girl with the B-side of Little Deuce Coop. This was Brian Wilson's initial credit as a solo writer, and this was also his first time as a producer. This is one of my all-time favorite Beach Boys songs. I love this. The harmonies on here are just gorgeous. They are perfection. I wanted to point out that Brian Wilson was heavily influenced by a jazz quartet called the Four Freshmen, another incredible close harmony singing quartet. They weren't just singers. I mean, they would accompany themselves on guitar, horns, bass, drums, you know, a lot of different instrumental configurations. But Brian clearly was a very ardent student of this group because these harmonies that they just in Surfer Girl are the kinds of harmonies that the four freshmen would specialize in. They were big in the 50s, early 60s, and there's a particular song they did called Laura from an album in 1960 called Voices and Brass. And you really hear the similarities of the four freshmen harmonies with Surfer Girl. That was
And Brian has commented on that um, yes. on several occasions. So. Absolutely. He was just a big fan. So obviously the four freshman harmonies are more on the jazz side, but Brian, you know, rearranged them and all to make it more of a pop kind of sound. And, oh, I love this song. I was going to say, I listened to the song Laura uh, mm-hmm. earlier on by the four freshmen. Mm-hmm. And when it started, my other half, Louise, said that she could hear the influence there immediately on the Beach Boys, and she called out the Beach Boys song in my room. Yes, that's another one. That's another one where you hear four freshmen all over the place. Yeah. And, and the, the lead right. singer of the four freshmen sounds a little bit like Brian. He does. That's very true. Those of you out there, if you haven't checked out some of their other work, particularly from the 50s and early 60s, and you will definitely understand where Brian got his harmonic ideas from. Happy birthday to Number 51, Heat Wave by Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, a great song we've mentioned before. Martha Reeves would also sing back up on Oh My My, a Ringo Starr hit in the 70s. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And yeah, this is a classic Holland Dozier Holland composition. Doesn't get much better than this. You know, classic Motown. At number 61, Desert Pete by the Kingston Trio. So I poured in the jar and I started pumping And I heard a beautiful sound of water bubbling and splashing Up out of that hole in the ground I took off my shoes and I drunk my fill of that cool, refreshing tree I thank the Lord, I thank the pump, and I thank old Desert Pete You've got to find the pump, you must have faith and believe You've got to give of yourself for your worthy to Not my cup of tea. It's a folk song. It's a hardcore folk song. Yeah, a little bit of a hootenanny. You know, we talked about the hootenanny style. It would have been better if it were more hootenanny. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, the Kingston Trio, very influential in the folk movement. Very interesting song. Tells the story of a man crossing the desert who finds a water pump. Next to the pump was a note left by Desert Pete. He's urging the reader of the note to use its contents to prime the pump instead of being a selfish jerk and drink from the jar itself. So he follows the instruction and, of course, because he wasn't selfish and instead he filled the pump with more water, 
he enjoys cool, refreshing water. So you get a morality lesson here. Don't be selfish. A nice enough lesson, but the song just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, it's not one of the Kingston Trio's best, I agree. It's just another example of how folk music is still present here on the chart. Here's some better songs that the songwriter would write. His name is Billy Ed Wheeler, and he would go on to write songs such as Jackson and Coward of the County. Yes. There you go. It's not the songwriter's fault, although, I mean, again, Coward of the County was much later, so this would have been fairly early in his songwriting career. So Coward of the County's great. Okay, at number 71, It's Too Late by Wilson Pickett. This is the classic cowbell-style, four-in-the-bar Wilson Pickett song. This is exactly the kind of song that John Lennon would say that he was influenced by when he wrote You Can't Do That. It's too late, Wilson Pickett just had the most incredible, incredible voice. You can hear the gospel influence here. He just sang with passion. He's getting down on his knees and that scream he he comes out with. I mean, this is just singing with all your guts. The James Brown style. Right. Vocalization, yeah. Exactly, and I love it. Wilson Pickett was just an incredible singer. He could do it all. I mean, he could sing the fast stuff. I mean, Mind of a Thousand Dances, you know, he could do that. And then he could do a ballad like this. What a singer. Another one at number 77, Can't Nobody Love You by Solomon Burke. Great Charles called you his sunshine Put you the apple of my eye I ain't gonna let nobody love you Like I'm loving you right now Cause they don't know how to love you like I do. No, they don't know how to love you like I do. Solomon Burke is the true example of someone who came straight out of the church. And you can hear yet another example of this in this song. I mean, he really bridges gospel, soul, and rock in this ballad. He's definitely taking you to church in his vocals here. What an incredible singer. At number 78, Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet. It is actually probably aged better than a lot of other songs. And in fact, it would not be a hit at this time in the British charts, but many years later in 1990, it would come around again. Thanks to a commercial, of all things. We first thought, oh, the movie, right? No, it was a commercial that brought it to the British public's attention. But it was originally a top 20 hit in 1951 for Tony Bennett. Precious and warm a memory Through the years And I still 
It's a little more dramatic than Bobby Vinton's version. Bobby Vinton is, you know, a little more on the poppier side, you know, but Bobby Vinton just loved this song and, and always, you know, wanted to record it. And uh, it obviously became a massive hit for him. This is clearly the version that everyone remembers, exactly. as you say. This was a, the bigger hit. Tony Bennett's was a top 20 hit. And Lawrence Welk would cover it right around the same time, to, to mention one of those other acts <laughs> which we talked about last oh, month. Oh, yeah, and you know that version, that Martin. <laughs> it was a banger. Love was ours. Ours love I held tightly. Feeling the rapture Gone was the glow of blue velvet But in my heart they'll always be Precious and warm a memory You know, this is Burt Bacharach's orchestra in the background, don't you? Yes, yep. I didn't know that. Beautiful glockenspiel in there. Yeah. And so we, we mentioned the movie, the movie a David Lynch joint and david lynch is now well buddies with ringo there you go everything is the, a beatles very very tenuous but there's a connection mm-hmm. all right at number 83 payback by etta james a great song but it just didn't do anything in the charts it's really a shame because i agree this is a great song i just don't know why it didn't do better i mean i don't think it would have been a number one hit but i just thought what a you know great sassy vocal i mean it's out of james what do you expect yeah. right her confident delivery of the horns i love the horns the clap along beat I thought it had good ingredients for a hit, and it only peaked at 78. I'm kind of astounded. So give this a listen, folks. It's really a underrated song. As opposed to the next one, which probably shouldn't have been rated much at all. Ooh. Number 85, <laughs> Drown in My Sorrows by Connie Francis. Yes, I'm drowning my sorrows A lot of these country songs we get here just sound like rewrites of old-style country. This sounds like Red River Valley to me. Hmm, interesting. What really got to me was the organ solo. Unless we're talking a Hammond B3, I'm not a huge organ fan. organ solo just really got to me you're also not really a connie francis fan yeah i i'm sorry apologies to connie francis apologies to connie francis she's just not one of my favorites but this that organ did her no favors 
I'm yeah. sorry. That, that organ reminded me of falling asleep at the back of church as a kid. <laughs> right. Very good. And Connie Francis had this to say about the charts that are to come. It didn't matter what I recorded. The industry was held hostage by the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five and all of those groups. Yeah, she was not a fan. Sour no. grapes. I get it. She had a bunch of hits. I'm just not a fan of where the boys are and stuff like that. That's just my personal taste. But I know she had a lot of hits, but time marches on. <laughs> What can I say? All right. At number 89, Lucky Lips by Cliff Richard, which we mentioned only because it's interesting that it's here, that it had made at least some nominal movement in the charts. It only got to 62. And I just think it's interesting to mention here because, you know, the Beatles and Brian Epstein had to have seen this, you know, when they were thinking, okay, the Beatles, we have to think about breaking into America. Well, Cliff Richard has... A big, big hit in the UK. Number one singles all over the place. And look at this. Didn't get very far in the US. So you can see, I'm sure, they had a lot of trepidation about you know, whether they were going to make it here or not. At number 91, Make the Music Play by Dionne Warwick. This is a nice song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can definitely hear the typical Burt Bacharach, uh, Hell David, you know, the chord changes, the complicated melody, those pauses. I mean, that is typical Bacharach David stuff, and only Dionne Warwick could handle that. Not many vocalists can handle their stuff. It's complicated to sing, and this is a very good example of that kind of material. But it's from a first album, isn't it? Uh, Isn't there a story where uh, Bacharach and David discovered her as a backing singer for a couple of Drifters songs the year before, and then they sort of wrote the majority of this first album for her? I met Bert first. Uh, We were doing a background session, and he had written a song with another songwriter, Bob Hilliard called Mexican Divorce and uh, the Drifters were recording it and we the girls were doing the background for as a part of the background group with the Drifters and uh, after the first rehearsal uh, Bert approached me and asked if uh, if I would do some demonstration records of songs he was writing with a new songwriting partner called Hal David and I said you know sure as long as it didn't interfere with my education in my schooling and my, my mother said it was okay and I signed with Burton Howe as my producers and they in turn signed their production company to Scepter Records. Well I didn't know what we could really do at the end I just knew she was wonderful to start with. That was a starter and that she had some exceptional musicianship um, and as, as how David and I started to write for her the more, we, the more we recorded, the more we wrote, the more we saw what she was capable of doing. She did work as a backing vocalist, and this is from her first album. In 1963, Scepter Records released the first album for Marie Dion Warwick. However, they spelled her name wrong, making the second R into a W. 
but Dion wasn't upset by the error and took to the name Warwick, which has since brought her worldwide fame and celebrity. It's just amazing how she could really nail Backrack David's songs, and not many vocalists can. You know, as I said, the chord changes are weird, very rangy. She could nail those songs so well. All right, at number 96, there's one of those surf songs, The Lonely Surfer by Jack Nietzsche. Jack Nietzsche is a name that anyone who has a comprehensive collection of rock records would have seen as an arranger, producer, or songwriter. Yet, despite a career spanning some 20 years, you remain an enigmatic figure. Is this deliberate? Is it deliberate? An enigmatic figure, like a, you mean the low profile? Very low profile. It's to some extent deliberate. I, didn't, I never cared about that random notes scene. That's hard to answer. That's a name that we don't really remember, but he's actually Phil Spector's right-hand man, and he would go on to work with Neil Young and the Stones. Yep, and also worked in film scores for the films of The Exorcist, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and won an Oscar for co-writing Up Where We Belong. Pretty amazing guy. And in fact, we're going to encounter him again behind the scenes in just a moment. But yeah, here's his entry in the surf category. I think this was still around the time that he was working with Phil Spector, but this was his sort of solo debut. And you can definitely hear the Phil Spector influence on this song. I mean, it's very dramatic, cinematic, big sound, you know, complete with strings, reverb, guitar, trumpet, and Hal Blaine. Martin mentioned him earlier. He's on drums. It's very moody. Now, it does it sound very surfy? Not at all. <laughs> But it's Lonely Surfer. So. It, yeah, it's a Lonely Surfer. So, so, he's, so he's moody. And this is a very moody song. There you go. He deserves the Nishi name there, so. Yes. He, he earns it good. with this record. Yeah. So. <laughs> the challenge begins with how to pronounce his name. The first bit should sound like Ni, the second like Cha, Nietzsche. Then we need to get past some of his extraordinary and provocative statements. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. God is dead and we have killed him and his large moustache, but when we do, we'll discover a thinker who's intermittently enchanting, wise, and very helpful. There's nothing nature couldn't teach about the rising of the wrist. The very prominent bass, you know, that's doing that melody, that's actually played by David Gates from Bread. No way! Hmm. Wow! On to the week of the 17th, August the 17th, still at number one is Fingertips, part two. Did you know how that was recorded? Just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. At number 71, The Crystals with Then He Kissed Me. Here is one of the times we're going to mention Jack Nishi again. He arranged this song. Yes, indeed. He pops up again here. And uh, gosh, what can you say about this record? 
What a great record this is. It's a classic. I love the wall of sound on this song. So this is an example where it really, really works. I love the percussion. The vocals are, are amazing. I just love the drums on this and then the other percussion. I mean, it just comes through so well. It just has that big sound to it. And this is a, kind of a mini trend in and of itself, kind of those leader of the pack style songs. Yes. You got motorcycles and, and you got the girls singing together about their boy and not quite consistent enough to be called a trend, but they are very similar records. Yep. But this is just like the Rolls Royce of those kind of records. I mean, it's just, I love it. It's just great. right up there with leader of the pack. I, leader of the pack is a great record. Yep. as well. But I just love this, this record, just a classic. All right. At number 80, little deuce coop by the beach boys who we had spoken of earlier. You know, Brian is having his share of fun. Flip side to Surfer Girl. This is a fun song. One of, of course, their great car, you know, the car songs. And Brian Wilson later said that he loved doing this song particularly. It's a good shuffle rhythm was not like most of the rhythms of the records on the radio in those days. Had a bouncy feel to it. And he said it was his favorite Beach Boys car song that they did. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great song. I mean, they actually don't really have that many car songs. No. Well, 409, That's I always like that one too. And it's also uh, notable that it's one of the last songs they did before Al Jardine joined the band. So there you go. At number 87, Jay and the Americans with a four-way composition. Only in America, Lieber, Stoller, Wheel, and Man. So the two writing teams hooked up together. A Brill Building special. Only in America. Land of opportunity. What a classic girl like you fall for a poor boy like me. I've always liked this song. It sounds a bit like on Broadway, which makes sense because I think it's the same group that (laughs) that wrote that song. It was originally meant for the Drifters. I don't know why they passed on it, but they did. The song the Drifters were given had very different lyrics. Only in America, they were given one with different lyrics. The version of the song that the Drifters were given were about civil rights. Oh, It was a song about being shoved to the back of the bus. Oh, only in America in a sarcastic way. I see. Oh, wow. This is a very different version then. Yeah, this is more optimistic and and all that. So, oh, interesting. Okay. So they obviously rewrote it. I mean, basically, it's like, you can't sing that. Right. Oh, yeah. That would have been way too controversial for 1963. You're right. Shame so, away. They went 100% the other direction. Boy, did the, they ever. The lyrics sound like one of those up with America 
post-2001 records that we kind of got. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I still like it. You know, just the sound of it. I like the arrangement and all, but interesting. I like the song, but I'm not such a big fan of these lyrics. Yeah, I mean, they're idealistic, but interesting. Okay, so I didn't know part one of that story about the Drifters. Wow. Ah, okay, makes sense. I didn't know this song and, and the reason it got to Jay and the Americans is like, well, we're called Jay and the Americans. We can do that. Yep. <laughs> sure. That is really how they ended up with this song. Wow. So I, I believe we've mentioned it before, but Jay and the Americans would be in front of the Beatles at the Washington Coliseum show in February 1964. Wow. And they weren't happy about the fact that the girls wanted the Beatles. <laughs> I love how they won them over, though. They, when the girls were chanting and all, and the lead singer, Jay, finally said to the crowd, hey, man, glad you all came out to see us tonight. And that cracked up the audience. That won them over. And so that kind of quieted them down and they listened to the rest of the set. <laughs> the other thing they didn't like is the bill was marked as the Beatles and others. Ouch. Jay was going to walk and say, forget this, we're out of here. And the drummer was kind of saying, are you insane? You know, we signed this contract. It is exposure. So we've got to do we, we've this. We've got to do it. Even if they'd wanted to, they couldn't walk away because as Martin and I discussed on a recent fab, it was in the middle of a blizzard. Not only would they not get paid, not only would they have a reputation in the industry, they just physically couldn't get out of it. <laughs> Right, so they might as well just play. All right, at number 88, Mickey's Monkey by The Miracles. Not one of their better known songs, but it, it's a fun song. It is. And what's also notable is Smokey Robinson didn't write it. It's one of the few songs they ever did that they didn't write. It was Holland Dozier Holland. And uh, it's a fun record. I think it ultimately reached number eight on the American chart. And it is just so catchy. I mean, the lyrics are silly. It's meant for dancing. But there are a couple of interesting things. The background vocals, kind of an all-star vocal group, Mary Wilson of the Supremes, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, members of the Temptations, and the Marvelettes. That's quite a backing group. And Smokey and the Miracles used to perform this during the Motown Review touring shows, which we've talked about those before, and it would bring the house down. So when they'd finally get Stevie off the stage, as we talked about <laughs> last time, this would be like their closing number. And That would be a tremendous way to end the show. Absolutely. All right, at number 94, I'm Not a Fool Anymore by, uh, how do you pronounce that? I think it's T.K. Hulan. I'm not 100% sure. T.K. Hulan. Swamp Pop. I, you know, really interesting to see the number of Swamp Pop records that they weren't tremendous hits, but they were on the charts. Um, and uh, as we've talked about before, Oh Darling, 1969, was an ode to Swamp Pop. And so here's another record. And I love the nickname that T.K. Hoolan had, who was from Louisiana. He was the voice with a tear. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and he does kind of sound like he's crying a bit when he sings this. And of course, that's the typical swamp pop sound. And when you hear this, it's got everything. You know, we talked about the checklist earlier with She Loves You that it had filled all the different things. Well, same thing here. You've got the typical swamp pop beat. You've got the crying, imploring vocals. He had his heart broken into a thousand pieces, but he's going to get up again. He's not going to be a fool anymore. It's classic, classic swamp pop. I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm not as proud as before. All that is shame. All right, at number 97, a record by a band called The Rip Chords called Gone. We've been going steady, and you've been making me cry. Now it's your turn, baby. So I'm saying bye-bye. The record itself is not hugely interesting. It, no. It's it is kind of another surf record, although they don't have surf in the title. Yeah, it's but kind the, of doo-woppy. Yeah, it's got more than a touch of the surf beat to it. Yeah, for sure. But what's interesting is the two members of this band. One of them being Bruce Johnston, who of course would become a member of the Beach Boys. And Bruce Johnston's contribution to Beatles lore is that he is the one who would take Pat Sounds over to England and play it for John and Paul. And then, of course, the rest is history when Paul heard Pet Sounds thought, uh-oh, we've got to step it up for our next record. But the other half of the rip chords, Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day. Terry Melcher was, at this time, working with Jack Nishi. Mm-hmm. There he is again. <laughs> Jack Nishi got around. Yeah. And he would have just all sorts of bits and pieces throughout the 60s. He would work with the birds on Mr. Tambourine Man. Mm-hmm. He would work with Pete Seeger on Turn, Turn, Turn. And he would work with Beach Boys with his buddy Bruce Johnson. Yes, he did. And uh, also, unfortunately, became involved along with Dennis Wilson with Charles Manson. Charles Manson, I thought he was a budding songwriter and kind of attached himself to Dennis Wilson. Terry Melcher knew him through that, too. And, of course, I, the, the Beach Boys did record one of Charles Manson's songs and, long story short, quickly learned that he was a psycho. And thought, we've got to disassociate ourselves from this guy. And so, you know, and I believe that Sharon Tate and her friends were staying at what used to be Terry Melcher's house. And some people believe that the Manson thing was actually meant for Terry Melcher. Right. Revenge. So. Yeah. And he would go on to work with the Beach Boys all the way up through Kokomo. But what is quoted frequently, although I can't find any proof for it, is that he was in charge of McClan for some period of time in the 70s. McClan yeah. being the American sub-publisher of Northern Songs. Yeah, I never knew that. 
He's an interesting fella, not just being Doris Day's son. He so he must have known Paul because Paul and Doris Day were yeah they friends, were friends. So yeah, and one of the things I found kind of interesting amongst his earliest writing credits was a Doris Day song that Helen Shapiro would cover on her first album. No kidding. So Terry Melcher wrote a song that's on Helen Shapiro's first album. Wow, wow. boy, he's like Forrest Gump. He's everywhere. <laughs> wow fascinating at number 100 crybaby by garnett mims and the enchanters a song which would later become much better known from the janis joplin version your eyes are getting rich so come on When I came across this title, I thought, wait a minute, I think I've heard this song before. And yes, everybody knows the Janis Joplin version. This is the original, and I really like it. Garnet Mims is really quite influential in soul music and R&B. Again, you can hear the gospel in his voice here. Many critics think he's underappreciated. I agree. I think I'd heard the name Garnet Mims before, but didn't know much about him. I think this song... Is. And Janice borrowed more than a little bit from this record. Just a little, yes. Uh, you know, you really, when you hear the two back to back, you really hear how much she kept from this. And actually, there is an uncredited backing vocal on this by a group called the Gospel Airs. And uh, Martin, you'll be interested. This group featured Dion Warwick, D.D. Warwick, and Estelle Brown. Wow. So they, they sang back up. Yeah. Wow. All right, August the 24th, at number one, still, there's Stevie and Fingertips Part 2. You bet. We move on to the bottom of the charts. Here, here's a couple of, of white bread songs for you. Something Old, Something New by Paul and Paula at number 93. I take your hand and say I do. I love to have and to hold. With this band of gold With this band of gold And Treat My Baby Good by Bobby Darren. Just make sure every day that you treat her The way she'd like to say that you should Treat my baby good Just make sure every day that you treat her the way she'd like to say that you should um, Neither one of which have aged particularly well. No, I mean, something old, something new. There were a number of records from this period that had this theme of commitment, Chapel of Love kind of stuff. I mean, Chapel of Love is a fun song, but it was that same extolling the virtues of marriage and commitment. And this was, I think, the follow-up to Hey Paula. So now they've moved on from that, you know, because of course the lyrics were Hey Paula, I'm Hey Hey Paula. I want to marry you, you know, and well, now they're now married. Now they're so. getting married, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> 
those crazy the lyrics, kids. of course, taken by taken from the the famous saying, "Something old, something new, yeah. something borrowed, exactly. something blue." So it's very saccharine. Sorry, Paul and Paul fans. <laughs> <laughs> I like Bobby Darren, but Treat My Baby Good is just doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, it's almost like he's trying to be a little hipper, and it just doesn't work. And he shouldn't. I like Bobby Darren, too. I mean, I like when he's himself and doing more classic kind of stuff. Yeah, it has a bit of a Latin rhythm, which, as we've talked about in past shows, that was the thing. When I was doing research, I found an old clip of him on American Bandstand where Dick Clark was asking him about the Beatles, and this must have been like 64 or so, kind of saying, what do you think of the Beatles? Do you think they're going to last? And he actually was very complimentary. As opposed to Connie Francis. As opposed to Connie Francis. But he was kind of warning. He was sort of saying, well, if they stick together and they don't do anything too crazy, I guess he meant don't veer too much from their sound, like their signature (laughs) sound. You know, something like that, which, uh, yeah, that wasn't great advice. (laughs) But he said something like, I think they're really marvelous. So he was very supportive of them. These uh, people here today uh, and our friends at home are sort of preoccupied with some fellas from England called the Beatles. Now, everybody asks me, and I might as well return it to you. Years ago, they said, do you think Bobby Darren will be around in two or three years? And I'd say, well, yes, I think maybe he might do that. What do you think about the Beatles? Will be around? I think the only reason that these fellas might not possibly be around in the next few years is the fact that there are four of them, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, when, when the King, when Presley broke through, there was still, he was just one individual you know, from which to work, to go into romantic type situations or whatever his calling was going to be. With um, the four boys, <coughs> excuse me, from England, if they can do, let's say once a year, what they did uh, this year with A Hard Day's Night, the motion picture, if they do not step out of their own milieu, so to speak, I think they'll be around for a thousand and one years. All right. Because I think they're brilliant. At number 95, wham! Nothing to do with George Michael. Nope. By Lonnie Mack. This is a song which is covered by Stevie Ray. <laughs> The guitar playing, just tremendous. Wow. That is one hell of a riff. It is. This doesn't even sound like it's from 1963. You know, it's timeless. I mean, we've kind of said that about his cover of Memphis in the Mm -hmm. last show. Yeah, this too. I found a great clip of he and Stevie Ray Vaughan performing together on stage in the 80s. Holy cow. Mm. I, I thought their their guitars were going to catch on fire. <laughs> I mean, they were so good together. And you can see how he influenced Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, for sure. There is a straight line mm-hmm. through the Almond Brothers into Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, two tremendous guitar players who would meet tragic young ends. Yeah. Yep. My notes actually have five words on them that, that matches what you just said. My notes just say, that guy sure can play. well absolutely yeah i mean he he was just a virtuoso of blues rock guitar and he influenced i think everybody from steve ray vaughn to eric clapton Dwayne allman you know you name it all right at number 96 another great guitar player not a great song but another great guitar player Dwayne eddie with your baby's gone surfing there we go Dwayne eddie even jumped in on the trend the lyrics are really silly Dancing, dancing, dancing to the guitar man. 
when he plays the guitar, and he does get to play the guitar a lot in this song, it's great. It's Dwayne Eddy, you know, just incredible. That twangy guitar filled with the reverb, but definitely not one of his best records. It sounds overly commercial. It's trying too hard. Trying too hard, exactly. But great guitar. All right, at number 98, Nancy Wilson with Tell Me the Truth. She was a capital artist. Friends say to me, she has the key to your heart. Tell me the truth. Is it over now? Tell me the truth. Do you want her now? She would be recognized as the second most important artist at Capitol. Not the Beach Boys. I just thought this was fascinating. Of course, Nancy Wilson, legendary jazz singer. And she was one of the biggest selling artists at Capitol Records. She delivered uh, some three dozen albums and would regularly rank directly behind the Beatles in the company's annual sales tally. That's pretty impressive that that's how big she was. I found a quote in the Jazz Times website saying the label's Hollywood Tower may have been known as the house that Nat built, Nat King Cole, of course, but surely Wilson financed most of the fittings and furnishings. <laughs> so I just thought it was you know, interesting to note that. I mean, she was second only to the Beatles in the company's annual sales tallies from 64 on. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Tell me the truth. In my opinion, this is not a great example of her work. She sings it very well. I mean, she was a great singer, but I just don't think the lyrics go much of anywhere. And here I go with the organ again. Don't like that organ. Tell me the truth. Would have been great with piano, guitar, and drums. You know, just very simple. It just overall didn't go anywhere. But yeah, when I heard the organ, I just thought, oh no. (laughs) No. Piano, come on. At number 100, Do the Monkey by King Curtis. King Curtis, the sax player of the early days of rock and roll. Oh, this record. I love this. His playing is fire on this track. (laughs) The lyrics are nothing. But who cares? He's just showing off his skills. It's something that you can dance to if you want to, but it's mainly just to remind you what an incredible player it was, why he was a top session guy. And of course, the John Lennon connection. Well, shortly before he died, King Curtis said is, he would play on Imagine, just doing some tremendous work, and I don't want to be a soldier, and it's so hard. Well, I love both, but I particularly love his work, and I don't want to be a soldier. 
Ah, oh, if you don't have the box set, get the box set just to listen to some of the King Curtis outtakes on there. Absolutely. I mean, the box set is definitely worth it for other reasons, but no matter who you are, there's a reason to own this box set. For sure. Curtis was stabbed just six weeks after he had done those John Lennon sessions uh, outside his Manhattan apartment. Really sad. A- another died far too young. That's for sure. You know, there's another Beatles link with Do the Monkey. And that is? It was written by Rudy Clark. Ah, oh. there you go. Who wrote Ooh. Got My Mind Set on You. Very good. All right. Into the last week in August, uh, 31st of August, Stevie's finally been displaced. There's a new number one. It's another one in that same sort of girls and motorcycles and clapping kind of. Yep. It's one of the better examples of it. Another girl group. Catchy as hell. Absolutely. Another classic. And they would join in on the Beatle craze a few months later and record a song called Little Beetle Boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Cute. At number 92, the Surfaris are back uh, with one that's not quite as good as Wipeout, Surfer Joe. They cut off his big blonde locks, I'm told, and when he went on maneuvers, Joe got cold. Surfer Joe, This record was very interesting. This has lyrics about a big bleached blondie named Joe. (laughs) I can see why Wipeout was the hit. (laughs) It was a very bizarre story about... It's a silly, strange song, but it's it's not good silly. It's just silly, silly. exactly. And the ending was just... I I mean, you know, tell the story, and then at the end, you're just like, that's it? (laughs) That's the story? It's almost a shaggy dog story. Yeah. Wipeout is definitely the better record. It it almost would have been better if it were a Bungalow Bill type song. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I was waiting for the big twist in the story, and and there wasn't one. (laughs) As opposed to the Kingston Trio song, at least they had the twist. Yeah, exactly. And a moral of the story, and then this one, nope, nothing. (laughs) Okay, at number 97, Nat King Cole is back with... That Sunday, that summer. Recall how we started. Darling, it would be when you smile at me that way. That Sunday. That summer. If I had to choose. This is kind of the return to older school Nat King Cole, kind of away from the poppy slightly. Yeah, this is a pretty song. I like this one. And actually, Natalie Cole did a a beautiful version of it years later for her 1991 album, uh, Unforgettable with Love. It's a... yeah, I've, I've always liked this. It's a, you know, really lovely lyrics. It's a ballad, but this has a little swing to it. Uh, what can you say? He just was... That a, voice. That voice, exactly. You can't beat it. I mean, it's so distinctive. All right, at number 98, Patsy Cline with Faded Love. I remember her face. 
This was written by Bob Wills and actually written along with his father, John Wills, and his brother, Billy Jack Wills. And so this... Was uh, this the first version of it? Playboys themselves released it in 50. This is a special song in Bob's life because with this song, he created something completely new. He lived in West Texas, out around Turkey, Texas. And he started playing this song at country dances in people's houses with just a fiddle and they had danced to it. They had such a beat you could. He did that for a while, made enough money to hire a guitar player. And that was his first band. But he didn't stop there, I'll tell you. He wanted the biggest and the most famous Western band in the whole wide world, and he wound up getting it, I'll guarantee you. He called him Bob Wills and the Texas Playboy. was actually from Patsy Cline's final recording session before she passed. And this record was released after she died in the plane crash. And it was supposed to be the title track to the album that she was working on when she died. Her version actually became a bigger hit than Bob Will's version. You listen to this and I mean, her voice just, it was just, a, you know, such a distinctive voice. And I mean, you just hang on her every word. And again, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show. It's the Nashville sound, the country pop sound with the strings and the lush arrangement. And of course, combine that with her smooth, clear voice and beautiful song. So I guess that's our other theme for the month is folks who died too young. Yeah, exactly. I mean, tragic, absolutely tragic. All right, at number 100 and closing out the charts for this month, Make the World Go Away by Ray Price. is a beautiful uh, ballad and it's a country classic tons and tons of people have recorded it and i'm embarrassed to say probably the first version i heard was by donnie and marie they recorded it in the 70s and had a hit with it that's probably the first version i heard um, i heard the elvis version first really now i'm sorry if i hurt you Let me make it up to you day by day And if you will, please forgive me And make the world, make it go away Make the world go
I'm sad to say, I think I heard Johnny and Marie first. It wasn't terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny and Marie fans. There's my next apology <laughs> uh, of the evening. <laughs> no, it wasn't a bad version, but Ray Price just had a, a tremendous voice. And he's also known for uh, recording one of my favorite country songs written by Willie Nelson, Nightlife. That's a, an incredible song. But Ray Price had one of the biggest hits with it. I just think it's a classic country ballad. All right. That closes the month of August out. So, I mean, you know, we talked through it. Maybe the American charts were a little bit better than I was thinking going in, but it still was kind of a milk toast set of songs for the month. There were some good soul and R&B on there. And, oh, and some good Beach Boys. Little Deuce Coop, Surfer Go, were either those new records for the month? Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have okay. to go back and look. But some classic Beach Boys songs, but there's also that surfer trend that's still going. There's also pop. To me, Blue Velvet is really representative of a number of the records that were popular in the early 60s. That kind of pop sound. And that's still present on the charts, uh, American charts at this time. All right. Next month, September of 1963, which is going to be the 12th month of the Beatles and the 12th month we've covered in this show. So we're going to kind of do a retrospective as our main feature before we go into the charts. Sounds good. Right. All right. We will be back with that in our next show. Talk to you soon. See you next time. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is, is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.